1: Everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Diplomatic History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Pace, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kai Bird about his book, which he co-wrote with the late Martin J. Sherwin, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Marty Sherwin passed away two years ago this month, but I feel very grateful that Kai Bird is here to discuss their work. Kai, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having
0: me, Andrew, it's a pleasure.
1: American Prometheus is not a new book. It was originally published in 2005 by Alfred A. Knopp, but in 2023, it has certainly received renewed attention and publicity because of Christopher Nolan's Hollywood blockbuster biopic Oppenheimer, which was released this summer. I wanna emphasize, however, that today we'll be talking to Kai about the book itself, not the film it inspired. Kai, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I, I uh, started out a- after college as a journalist, actually freelancing abroad from the Middle East and South Asia, and uh, I sort of, you know, spent 10 years in journalism and then drifted into writing biographies. So I, I'm, I come to history and biography from a journalistic background, not an academic one.
1: Your co-author, Marty Sherwin, was a brilliant historian who spent his career studying nuclear weapons and, in some ways, J. Robert Oppenheimer, since this book was a quarter century in the making. Can you tell us how this work on Oppenheimer started and how you became involved in the project?
0: Well, Marty Sherwin was a great historian. Uh, Alas, he's no longer with us. He died in October of 2021, but he had done his PhD thesis uh, on the subject of the end of World War II and the atomic bombings. And after he published that as a book in 1975, he was casting about for a new project and uh, he eventually landed, his editor at Knopf persuaded him to do Oppenheimer. Uh, he was a little reluctant, he was intimidated by the subject. It was, It's a big, broad subject, complicated life. Um, but Marty signed the contract in 1980 with Knopf and then he got to work researching and, uh, you know, he did 150 interviews. He went to every archive in the world connected to <laughs> that might have anything to do with things Oppenheimer. And the years rolled by, and he, you know, he was a working professor at Tufts. And uh, the years rolled by, and, and lo and behold, in 1999, he came to me and said, why don't you join me on this project? Um he, he had sort of gotten biographer's disease, which is uh, when the biographer, you know, can't begin to write yet because, you know, there's at least one more archive to visit and one more interview to do. And uh, Marty was a great writer. He was very facile and fast, but uh, this subject was, you know, he, he knew it was gonna be his life work and uh, he was, determined to chase down every last lead. And so that was an excuse not to write. So he was stuck by 1999. And actually, when he asked me to join him, I looked at him and I said, Marty, I I can't do that because I like you too much. (laughs) You know, co-authorship can be fraught with perils and big egos and And uh, so I hesitated, but Marty kept nagging me about it and uh, explaining that Oppenheimer was such a wonderful subject and he'd done all this research. And uh, I was unemployed as such uh, in between books. I had done, you know, two big biographies by the year 2000, um, biography of John... John J. McCloy, called The Chairman, that came out in 1992, and a biography of the Bundy brothers, McGeorge and William Bundy, and that book came out in 1998, called The Color of Truth, and uh, in both of those books, I had had to write about Oppenheimer. Because both McCloy and the Bundy brothers were friends of Oppenheimer's and admirers. And so, you know, I had a few paragraphs writing about Oppy. But the thing that actually brought Marty and I together was uh, a, yet another controversy that exploded in 1994 95 on the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II when the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. planned a 10,000 square foot historical exhibit on Hiroshima and the end of the war and the Enola Gay, the airplane that dropped the bomb. And it was going to be a terrific exhibit, very complicated, nuanced history with a display of documents and, and, you know, some hard questions uh about the history which you know hiroshima is always going to be controversial well in 94 the american legionnaires and the air force association lobby groups in washington got their hands on the uh, planning document the transcript for the exhibit and they cried foul they said this is unpatriotic history And they created an enormous political controversy and politicians on Capitol Hill just folded. And uh, you know, the, the legionnaires demanded to censor the exhibit. And eventually the director of the Air and Space Museum that was hosting this exhibit at, as part of the Smithsonian lost his job, he was fired um marty and i tried to defend the museum uh with with a a couple of op-eds and uh, we formed a committee of historians to defend the museum but we failed but in the process marty and i were sort of thrown together and became even closer and uh out of that experience i think marty uh, it gave him the notion that maybe we could work together on a on to finish Oppenheimer. So in 2000, I, I finally agreed to join him, and you know it turned into a fabulous collaboration. Um, and you know we remained friends even after the book was published. Five years later, it still took us five years to write and publish the book. Um, And, uh, you know, the result was a Pulitzer Prize in 2006, and now the Christopher Nolan film Oppenheimer. The book's title, American
1: Prometheus, uh, invokes Greek mythology and the themes of classical tragedy. In what ways was Robert Oppenheimer a modern Prometheus? And how did his life and career reflect those themes of uh, ancient mythology?
0: Yes, well, Prometheus, of course, is the Greek god who stole fire from Zeus, allegedly, and uh, gave it to humanity. And uh, then he was punished by Zeus for, for this thievery and pinned to a cliff and had his liver eaten out every, every evening by a giant eagle, uh, tortured, in effect for having given fire to humanity. And of course, Oppenheimer gave humanity atomic fire as such. He gave us the dawn of the atomic age, which we're still living with and always will. And then nine years later, he was punished for this um, and brought down and humiliated in a kangaroo court in a security hearing in 1954. And Marty actually told, told me at one point when we were in the midst of writing the book, he said, you know, Kai, you and I would not be working all these years on Robert Oppenheimer if it was just a biography about the father of the atomic bomb, if it was just, you know, about the making of this gadget. What really makes the story compelling and gives it a, an arc is... What happened to him in 1954? The fact that he was hailed in 1945 as America's most brilliant scientist, and then nine years later, he becomes the chief celebrity victim of the entire McCarthy witch hunts. And how did that happen, and why? And what was the effect on Robert Oppenheimer? You know, that made the story really compelling. Finally, I should, I should say that uh, there's a funny story about the title, since you ask about American Prometheus. It's, uh, it is a great title, but it wasn't our original title. Um, Marty's working title, and I thought it was a good title, during the entire years that, we, that I worked on the book, from 2000 to 2005, our working title was simply Oppie which was oh, yeah. Oppenheimer's nickname. <laughs> and Marty and I just thought, you know, that's how we referred to him. That's how his students had referred to him. It was with affection. Um, we thought it was an intimate title. And no one liked it, though. We liked it, but <laughs> our wives didn't like it. Our editor didn't like it. And actually on the the uh, Friday before the final Monday deadline to uh, when the book was going to go into production, we got a call from our editor who said, you know, the marketing people just called and they say they can't, they can't sell a book with the title opi. And you have 48 hours to come up with a new title. (laughs) So that Friday night, um, as I was falling asleep late, my wife Susan turned to me and she says, "Well, why don't you why don't you call the book Prometheus or American Prometheus?" And I looked at her and rolled over and said, "Nah, that's that's too obscure. Who's going to remember this Greek god? You know, we're trying we're aiming for a large audience here." And I fell asleep. And the next morning, I get a call from Marty, very excited. He says, "Oh, Kai I went out to dinner last night with Ron Steele, the great biographer of Walter Lippman. And uh, Ron said he would never read a book with the title "Appy," And he suggested, why don't you call it American Prometheus? <laughs> <laughs> so both my wife and Ron Steele came up with the title in the same 24-hour period, and um, Marty thought the title was good, and I, I said, yes, I guess so, but I'm in big trouble with my wife now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a great title for a, for a, a, a great book about a, a great man who also was more than the sum of his parts. Uh, Oppie was famously more than a physicist, more than just a scientist. He was a polymath, a Renaissance man, uh, who is, as you describe in the book, read widely in history and philosophy, poetry, Hindu scripture. Uh, how did he become a physicist in the first place?
0: Well, he, he grew up in New York City. He His father was a German immigrant. His mother was of German ancestry. But he was, you know, young Robert was very much a New York City boy. And he, uh, his parents had fallen, had were of Jewish ancestry, but they actually ended up being members of the Ethical Culture Society in New York City, which is sort of a secular religion, a break off from reform Judaism, and uh, a, a highly intellectual society. And they had a school called the Ethical Culture School, and he attended the school. And from a very early age, it was clear he had an interest in the physical world and science. He had a rock collection. He excelled in chemistry in high school. Um, and, you know, he he uh, clearly was, was a bright young boy. And he went off to Harvard and studied chemistry and physics and then... For grad school, he went off to Cambridge, England um, to study experimental physics. And uh, there for the first time in his life, he actually found himself failing. He wasn't, you know, he was awkward he, physically. He wasn't good with his hands in the laboratory. He kept breaking things. Um, and he wasn't actually particularly good at math. Um, and, but he, and so he, as a result of this, he had a, uh, what we would call, I guess, a nervous breakdown or an emotional crisis of some sort, which we describe at some length in the book and which is depicted actually at the beginning of Nolan's film Oppenheimer in what is called the poison apple incident. Anyway, he survived this crisis, um, barely. He was actually quite uh, near suicidal, but he survived it and was able to transform his life emotionally. And he landed on theoretical physics uh, just at at the moment in the nineteen twenties when uh, quantum physics was being discovered. And he was, you know, particularly good at this. Uh, at this science, Uh, he could hear the music, he could think about it in in an imaginative way. And uh, he turned into a a brilliant quantum physicist.
1: You mentioned that Oppenheimer was rather an an awkward person, I suppose, physically. Uh, And yet so many of the people who uh, worked with him, who became friends with him, uh, and associated with him, they were often so struck by his, uh, physical presence and appearance. What, what was he like physically?
0: Well, he was, uh, yeah, he, physically a little awkward. He was a New York city boy, not particularly athletic, but you know, he was six, two, uh, but very thin, never really weighed more than 135, 140 pounds. um, and when he was 17, 18 years old, he was, uh, he came down with some kind of, uh, respiratory disease, probably tuberculosis. And, uh, his parents sent him that summer, uh, to the high plains of New Mexico, which they thought might benefit his lungs. And they sent him with, uh, uh a chaperone, uh, uh, a teacher from the Ethical Culture School. And Oppenheimer suddenly exposed at this young age to New Mexico and the cowboy culture there. He he fell in love with horseback riding and camping and the high plains of New Mexico. And uh, he turned out to be, you know, someone who Despite his New York City background, he loved the Spartan existence and and uh, just fell in love with New Mexico. So, but yes, he was physically awkward, um, but he had a presence. And you know, as he became a uh, mature adult in his twenties, he he was quite ha- handsome in a way. He was very attractive to women. Um, he. Had a very soft-spoken voice that was rather captivating. You know, the kind of voice that you sort of leaned into to to try to catch every word. Um, he was a, he could be extremely eloquent. You know, he was a scientist, a physicist, but he had read widely. He loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway and the poetry of T. S. Eliot. Um, you know, he, he was indeed a polymath. His mother had been a painter and a collector of art. So he actually grew up in an, a, a 10-room apartment on the Upper West Side in downtown Manhattan, and where on the walls of the apartment were paintings by Van Gogh and Picasso. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, he, he was uh, highly educated, very articulate, and uh, he could speak... In public, in full paragraphs, and uh, you know, had a certain charisma.
1: And and the old black and white photographs don't uh, seem to do him justice because so many of the people who met him talk about these piercing blue eyes uh, that were really sort of uh, icy and uh, and and really uh, sort of enchanting, I guess, to, to women in particular. Uh, but Robert established a number of close relationships with various women throughout his life, but the book um, spends a, a bit of time highlighting his relationship with Jean Tatlock. Um, what was their relationship like? Why why was she such an important figure for him, uh, especially as a, a young professor at Berkeley during the, the 30s?
0: Yeah, well, he they met... <sighs> in uh, the mid thirties and uh he fell in love with this beautiful young woman she i think was only 22 when he first met her and she was extremely bright she was uh, studying to become a medical doctor a psychiatrist she was a freudian she was studying freudian psychoanalyst and uh at Berkeley, and uh, you know they were they were an item for three or four years, and um, but she kept breaking off the relationship, and was, you know, it was a turbulent relationship, off and on, um, and this is captured in the film by Nolan, where you see. Hoppy coming to visit her and always bringing flowers and she's always throwing them away. That actually apparently was true. We write about that in the book. Um, but w- one thing that the film does not cover about the relationship with Jean Tatlock was that she, uh, there's some good evidence that she was in conflict about her sexual identity. She may have been bisexual. Um and she was, and yet this was a source of some emotional distress to her because she was not only a Freudian, and the Freudians at the time uh, regarded uh, lesbians and gays as uh, a disease, um, but she was also a member of the Communist Party. She had become politically aware and active, and she drifted into left-wing politics and actually became a party member. And the Communist Party at the time, their official position was that homosexuality was a disease. And so she was struggling with her sexual identity, and uh, we're not sure whether Oppenheimer was aware of this, but this, I think, from other sources around her, this was a, a problem for her. Anyway, she was extremely influential over Oppenheimer. You know, he was in in Berkeley in the early nineteen thirties, and the at the beginning of the Depression. He was, you know, kind of an absent-minded professor, totally absorbed with his work in in quantum physics, um, and not very political. And when she, he met Jean Tatlock, she began to sort of criticize him for his lack of social awareness and in the midst of the Depression and urged him to become you know, more politically active. So he did. He began to uh, give contributions to activities supported by the Communist Party, like uh, a campaign to desegregate the public swimming pool in Berkeley, or raising money to send an ambulance to the Spanish Republic in the midst of the civil war there, um, and uh, so of course these activities, these political activities, and and by Oppenheimer would later get him into trouble with uh, army counterintelligence and and the McCarthy era in the nineteen fifties, but uh, you know we we spend a Marty and I, you know, spend a lot of time in the book sort of documenting all the evidence surrounding Oppenheimer's political life and uh, looking at the evidence, 7,000 pages of FBI documents in particular, uh, looking at the whole man, we came to the conclusion that Oppenheimer was not uh, the kind of man... not the kind of free spirit intellectual who would submit himself to party discipline. Um, and that he was pink, but not red. <laughs> so, uh,
1: and, and Oppenheimer himself stated in, in, you know, a number of instances that he was never a member of the communist party. Right. Uh, but those, but those associations as you, you show really, uh, you know, came back to haunt him later in life.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the fact that his br- younger brother, Frank, was a member of the party, and that Jean Tatlock had been a member of the party, and that Kitty Oppenheimer, the woman he eventually did marry in 1940, also was an uh, a active party member for four years in the 1930s. Um, all of this was eventually, you know, while it was understandable for a left-wing professor in California in the 1930s to have left-wing sympathies. Uh, By by 1954, at the height of the McCarthy era, all of this was considered to be evidence against Oppenheimer um, and held against him.
1: Yeah, and even though uh, Robert and uh, Jean were engaged for a time, right, Uh, they never married he ended up marrying uh, Kitty Harrison. Is that right? right. And well, Kitty was Pruning Harrison. <laughs> Kitty Pruning Harrison. And she was um, she had uh, left-wing credentials, communist credentials, I suppose, uh, before she had met Oppenheimer, which I didn't realize. Yeah, she was a member realize. of the
0: too. She had been married... Uh, when she met o- o- Oppenheimer, she was like 29 years old, and she'd already been married three times. <laughs> and one of her, one her second husband was Joe Dalit, and she followed Joe to Spain. Um, and she actually never made it to. She made it to France, but not to Spain. But he actually in his first combat experience was killed by a uh, sniper fire in, in the Spanish Republic. And so she became a widow at a very young age, but uh, you know, she was an ardent communist, a supporter of the Spanish Republic.
1: And they had, it seems like quite a stormy relationship. She and
0: Oppie, uh, yes. what
1: was their, what was their marriage like?
0: Well, it, it it was a long marriage. It was a marriage that lasted until Oppenheimer died in 1967. But it was sometimes uh, a, a stormy marriage. Uh, she was a very high, strong, very intelligent. Um, she like Jean Tatlock had when she met Oppy. She was in graduate school studying uh, plant biology. Uh, she was studying, you know, to become a botanist. Um, And and so she was clearly highly intelligent and educated, and uh, for her time, you know, a a feminist. Um, And yet she, you know, she, uh, they met in 1940. And then he invited her up to his ranch in New Mexico that summer. And Uh, One thing led to another, and by the end of the summer, she was pregnant uh, with Peter. And so she had to uh, quickly arrange a a divorce from her third husband, Dr. Harrison. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then she quickly married uh, Oppenheimer. But she wasn't uh, ever... uh, you know, by all accounts, she was, uh, she was a good mother, but a difficult mother, a mother who, uh, you know, clearly suffered from postpartum depression um, after the birth of her, her, her son, Peter, and her daughter, Tony, uh, and she found it difficult to adapt to life in Los Alamos, this very weird secret city that Oppenheimer became the director of in 1942-43 and uh, you know she wasn't really challenged in her work she she had she did some work at Los Alamos but uh, you know it was a male culture of scientists and engineers and the housewives were housewives and uh, she she was frustrated, and but it turns out, and this is betrayed uh, in the, both the book and in the film. You know, during the nineteen fifty four hearing, uh, she came out as a tiger in defending Oppenheimer, her husband, and at a time when Oppenheimer himself was sort of weirdly unable to mount a, an aggressive defense and uh, seemed incapable of uh, rebutting the prosecutor's arguments. Um, and Kitty w- was, uh, by contrast, uh, splendid and witty and uh, highly effective in defending her husband. Uh, well, and she,
1: she kept her composure, too, it seems. Uh, she didn't seem to get flustered by the... The, the prosecuting questions, uh, right was really yeah, able um, to, and, and maintained the sort of the, the nuance in, in sharing her experiences.
0: Right. So it was a uh, temptuous relationship, but one that was lasting, and clearly Afi was devoted to her and she was fiercely devoted to him. So, you know, but like all marriages, it was a complicated marriage. Right. (laughs) One of the most uh, important events of the book is the
1: so-called Chevalier Affair. I hope I'm saying that right, Mm -hmm. Uh, which would ultimately become a crucial issue in Robert's security hearing in 1954. What happened and why was it so important and I think challenging to uh, determine uh, what took place?
0: Well, it, like many things in Oppenheimer's life, uh, the, Cheval, the so-called Chevalier incident was a mystery. Um, Hakan Chevalier was uh, one of Oppenheimer's closest friends at Berkeley. He was a French literature professor. Um, you know, Oppy uh, loved, he spoke French, he read French poetry and literature. And anyway, they became good friends. Uh, and Chevalier was actually a member of the Communist Party um, and uh, at one point in 1942 just as Zoppi was about to go off to Los Alamos um, you know Chevalier knew that he was a quantum physicist and he heard rumors of, of what uh, physicists were working on. And he came over for dinner one night in uh, the Oppenheimer home at One Eagle Hill in Berkeley. And as Oppie that evening was mixing his famous gin martini (laughs) uh, in the kitchen, Chevalier apparently said something to Oppenheimer like well you know I've heard that there's a guy named George Eltonton uh, who works at the in a lab downtown who has contacts with the Soviets and you know the, there's there's rumors that the Americans are not sh- sharing their knowledge with the our Russian allies and he George Eltonton has a uh, a window onto the Soviet consulate and, and he could, you know, if you could pass on information if you wanted to. And by one account, uh, Oppenheimer is listened to this and immediately said, well, that would be treason and immediately cut off the conversation. Um, and that's probably what happened. And Yet, the thing that sort of tripped Oppenheimer up in all this is that he did not immediately report this conversation. Well, he was just then being recruited into becoming scientific director of the project and he was about to go off to Los Alamos, so he wasn't very familiar with the security rules and regulations, but... Three months later, he did con- confess to an Army counterintelligence security officer. He said, You know, maybe you should look at this guy, keep an eye on this guy, George Eltonton. <laughs> uh, and they immediately said, Why? And right. who told you that Eltonton had uh, suggested that he could pass information to the Soviets? And Oppenheimer then, by his own account later, made up a cock and bull story, as he described it in the 1954 hearing. Uh, And in an effort to protect his friend Chevalier, uh, he refused to name Chevalier and said, oh, there, there were three other people who approached me about this or approached someone. And I mean, it was a very confusing story. We're not quite sure what exactly was said, Um, but in 1943, when Oppenheimer confessed this to his counterintelligence uh, security officer, uh, um, they tape-recorded the conversation. And so this became evidence in the 1954 hearing that he had delayed in his uh, responsibility to, informed the counterintelligence people about this conversation and that he had refused to pass on the the name of Chevalier. But, you know, eventually, a few months later, he did, under orders from General Leslie Groves, the the leader of the Manhattan Project, uh, Groves ordered him to give him the name and, and Oppenheimer did and thus implicated chevalier who was then interrogated by the fbi on numerous occasions Um, anyway in a in a sense it was much ado about nothing because uh no information as far as we can see was ever transmitted to the russians through this through chevalier or eltonton and there's no evidence that oppenheimer was a spy or that he ever transmitted any information um, and yet it was held against him and uh, helped to bring him down during the 1954 trial. And and the evidence
1: uh, exonerating Oppenheimer, I guess I would say, becomes even more clear when you consider that the FBI had transcripts of all of these conversations and they had wiretapped his home and his office and his, his friends, uh, which I found such a uh, a fascinating aspect of uh, the book and, and, and of his life that he was uh, hounded by these allegations and by these, uh, these bugs wiretapping by the FBI for so many years. Um, why, did, why did the FBI open an investigation into him and, and I guess how did their uh, surveillance overshadow his work?
0: Well, uh, the FBI was shadowing thousands of Americans. Uh, you know, By 1940, when Oppenheimer first came to the attention of J. Edgar Hoover, he was simply a physics professor at Berkeley, but uh, FBI agents were um, putting people under surveillance who were suspected members of the Communist Party. And uh, it seems that the first, in the first instance, the reason they put Oppenheimer on, on their list to be watched was that he uh, attended a social function where there were a number of Communist Party members, and some FBI agent was outside the, this private residence jotting down the, the uh, license plates of people mm-hmm. who had attended this party and they recorded Oppenheimer's license plate and so he was put on a list of people to be watched. <laughs> and then of course when he was selected to become scientific director at Los Alamos, there was even more attention and scrutiny of his political background and associates and people were were interviewed and, you know, so eventually over the years his FBI file grew from, you know, a few dozen pages to 7,000 plus pages. Uh, and, yeah, these FBI documents are, it's like uh, the telephone game that kids play. Right. <laughs> One story's passed on, and as it's passed on to another agent who writes it down in a memo, it, it becomes... Uh, uh, exaggerated and uh, and in the retelling it becomes uh, first uh, a rumor and then a fact and uh, all of it was very suspect and there is no real evidence that Oppenheimer was a either a member of the Communist Party, although he had many friends and associates and um, and could appear to be, Uh, uh, Very pink, but there's no evidence that he actually paid dues or uh, had a party card.
1: And part of the problem, it seems, is that there were also uh, FBI agents or officials like J. Edgar Hoover who, uh, rather than just making sort of honest mistakes in interpreting uh, the 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 phone call, as it were, being passed on. They also seemed to see something sinister in Oppenheimer and continued to uh, pursue allegations against him or try to find evidence that would implicate him, even though uh, they hadn't found any. Right. But when he was at um, when he was at Los Alamos, Oppenheimer was regarded. It sounds like as a, a brilliant administrator he was obviously uh, a capable. Um, intelligent scientist, but really managed people and the relationship with the military particularly uh, quite well. Uh, But how did he feel about the gadget itself, you know, the atomic bomb? Um, He he seems to have, have wrestled with the morality in a way that a lot of scientists did, but after the war he famously claimed to President Truman that he had blood on his hands. Um, What did he think about the ethics
0: of the bomb? Right. Well, he he had, you know, his motivation for doing this, for building the gadget was quite clear. Uh, He feared German fascism and he had studied with Werner Heisenberg and other German physicists in Germany, and he knew that they were perfectly capable as he was um, to explore the the possibility of uh, an atomic bomb, and he feared that Heisenberg and and others were going to give Hitler this weapon, and that they would use it to uh, make the fascists victorious in World War II. And so he this was he was highly motivated to. Um, to build the gadget. He thought he was in a race with the Germans. At the same time, he was uh, painfully aware that the bomb, if it was successful, was going to be such a large weapon that there was no military target other than a city. And that therefore, the victims of the, any atomic bombing were going to be innocents, women and children, and old men, and you know, a whole city. Um, And so he was painfully aware of this. And after the war, he spent the rest of his life essentially trying to warn policymakers and the American people, both in private but in public speeches, about the dangers of these weapons. And uh, as early as October 1945, he gave a speech in Philadelphia in which he was quite explicit in saying, you know, you may think that these Weapons are very expensive because we spent $2 billion on them to develop them. Uh, But actually, they are cheap. And uh, you may think that they are uh, weapons of defense, but actually, they are weapons for aggressors. And they are weapons of terror. And uh, they were used, and then he goes on to say, they were used on an essentially already defeated enemy. Um, and he was trying to make the argument that we should place international controls over atomic weapons, ban them, create an international agency that would have sovereign powers to inspect any factory and any lab anywhere to make sure that no one was building these weapons because they were so dangerous. And this is the argument he was trying to make to Harry Truman in the Oval Office in late October 1945. And Truman uh, interrupted him and and, uh, by all accounts said, well, Dr. Oppenheimer, when do you think the Russians are going to get this weapon? And Oppenheimer tried to respond. And again, Truman interrupted him and said, "Uh, well, I know, never. And at that moment... (laughs) Uh Oppenheimer understood that the President of the United States did not understand that there were no secrets, that the physics was now known, and that uh, any nation, however poor, that wanted to develop these weapons could do so. And of course the Russians were going to develop them if they desired to do so. And so he blurted out, he said exactly the wrong thing. He blurted out, well we have blood on our hands or I have blood on our, on my hands. And of course he was saying this to Harry Truman, the man who had authorized the the decision to use two atomic weapons on two Japanese cities. So uh, Truman allegedly ended the meeting quickly and turned to his aide and said, I don't want to see that crybaby scientist ever again. So, And, and those views,
1: uh, the, Oppenheimer's views certainly seem to make him uh, an outsider uh, from the Truman administration. But you, you point out that he became very much an insider in Washington after uh, the, the success, as it were, of the atomic bombs and at the end of the war. Uh, how, did, <clears throat> how did Robert feel about being the father of the atomic bomb
0: Oh he was very ambivalent he hated that phrase <laughs> he, you know he from his perspective he he knew that it had been a collective effort he had merely been the yes. scientific director but at the same time he sort of relished the fame and authority he had as a celebrity scientist and he actually thought it was Part of his responsibility having given been given this celebrity status that he should use it to good effect to educate policy makers and politicians um, who couldn't possibly understand uh, all the the details of the science behind these weapons and uh you know, he wanted to use his celebrity status for, for the good. And he, quite frankly, I think we showed that he enjoyed being able to walk the halls of the Senate and be give testimony and walk the halls of the Pentagon and give, sit in on meetings with generals. And, and uh, you know, it was kind of a thrill to be a part of the establishment. <laughs> sure. and he, he was certainly a part of the establishment. He was, you know, chairman of the general advisory committee on nuclear weapons in the late forties and early fifties. And, um, but he was increasingly giving advice that was controversial and advice that was not, not wanted. Uh, you know, here he was saying we shouldn't be building the super, the hydrogen bomb. We shouldn't be, we should be relying on these weapons. And this is at a time when the U.S. Army and the Air Force and the Navy all wanted to develop weapons and spend more money on nuclear weapons. And here the, quote, father of the atomic bomb is saying, no, no, we shouldn't be doing this. So he was a threat. He was becoming a major threat to uh the very establishment, defense establishment in Washington that he was uh, a part of, so to speak. And so there was an effort to, uh, a need to bring him down. And this came about, actually, when Louis Straws, who was the chairman of the Board of Trustees at Princeton's in, uh, Institute for Advanced Study, and the man he was the man who had recruited Oppenheimer to... The director of the institute. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. And Strauss was also appointed in early '53 by Dwight Eisenhower to be chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. And as such, he had access to Oppenheimer's security file. And he had uh, a terrible, despite the fact that he had recruited Oppenheimer to be, come to Princeton, they had a. Uh, terrible relationship, there bad chemistry. Oppenheimer had uh, sort of been rude to him on numerous occasions. And uh, Strauss was very thin skinned and insecure about his own lack of a university education. Um, anyway, he had very conservative politics. He was a proponent of the super. Oppenheimer was an op- op- opponent of the super, the hydrogen bomb and straws began to think that well maybe oppenheimer was disloyal a security risk maybe a spy and uh he in 1954 53 54 we argue in the book he orchestrated the security trial that brought that was designed to bring down oppenheimer in private in a classified security setting without giving Oppenheimer a public platform. And uh, it's an incredible story and what happens in that security hearing.
1: And And you've you've described it as a kangaroo court. Right. Um,
0: Yeah, it was, you know, they, they wrote up a, a letter of charges that, uh, clearly suggested that Oppenheimer was uh, a security risk and perhaps had spied for the Russians. And then they subjected him to interrogation in a classified setting and uh, brought the FBI documents, the 7,000 pages, and they were sitting there on the table available to the, quote, prosecutor and the uh, security panel, three members. And, and not available to uh, to Oppenheimer, his defense. Right. Oppenheimer couldn't look at the documents and neither could his lawyer who was denied a, a security clearance. And so, you know, it was all hearsay in evidence. And uh, it's clear that they brought him down because of his policy advice against the super, the hydrogen weapon, and the his left-wing associations and the Chevalier affair were all part of. They were the rationale and the excuse for doing what they needed to do, which was, in the words of Edward Teller, one of his rivals at Los Alamos, uh, you know, Teller once said, "Well, we need to bring down Oppenheimer in his own church and defrock him." Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a fascinating
1: statement from Teller, and um, all of uh, everything in the book really builds to this security hearing. Uh, but I, I loved the statement that uh, that Ward Evans made, uh, who was the, the lone dissenting um, figure on the uh, the hearing panel, who said that the the case against Oppenheimer and their uh, revocation of his security clearance would be a black mark on the escutcheon of the country i thought that was uh, quite a, a a poetic and and rather prophetic statement about the the hearing as a whole uh but even after the hearing recommended that his security clearance not be renewed which i was also fascinated to realize that it would have expired one day later anyway right but even after that they uh uh, Strauss went went forward and made sure that their uh, recommendations were accepted by the the Atomic Energy Commission, and he really comes off as being uh, the villain of this uh, this story.
0: Yeah, no, he certainly he was the villain. He uh, he orchestrated the the hearing, and uh, yes, Oppenheimer's security clearance would have expired at the end of the year anyway, he could have just walked away. But, you know, he was, as I said earlier, he was sort of enthralled by the, uh, his status as a member of the foreign policy establishment. Um, and he he thought he needed to use his influence to keep his access in Washington. And uh, he thought, I think in a sort of, a uh, uh, moment of arrogance that he could defend himself and brush away any of these security c- concerns and so he was determined to challenge the you know the uh, charges And I love the story we tell and it's actually hinted at in the film too by Nolan uh, before he goes down to Washington, He goes down the hall to Albert Einstein and uh, tells Albert at the Institute, well, you know, I'm going to be absent for a few weeks. I have to go through this security hearing. And Einstein uh, turns to him and says, Robert, why are you bothering to do this? If they don't want your advice anymore, you should just walk away. You're, You're Mr. Atomic. You're Oppenheimer. Just walk away. And they argued and Robert explained, no, no, I need to have the security clearance to be able to participate in classified meetings in Washington and to use my influence to get the politicians to do the right thing. And uh, he turned away and walked out and Einstein turned to his secretary and said, there goes a NAR, NAR meaning the word in yiddish for a fool Mm -hmm. and einstein was right on the mark he you know he recognized that oppenheimer was being politically naive and foolish to think that he could uh, prevail in a security hearing that very quickly it would become apparent was completely stacked against him
1: and because of that oppenheimer became a, a really sort of a martyr as a, as a scientist, a kind of Galileo figure, you point out.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, he, he was. You know, you know Strauss succeeded in, in getting the security panel to strip Oppenheimer of his security clearance. And then uh, he probably made the mistake of leaking the entire transcript to the New York Times and other newspapers right. of this month-long security hearing and uh this was splashed across the front pages of newspapers across the country and it you know served to humiliate oppenheimer but it also uh, created a the seeds of a backlash and scientists everywhere in particular oppenheimer's colleagues at los alamos and the other labs were horrified and recognized that he had been sort of martyred in the same way that Galileo had by a, a government trial questioning his loyalty and honesty. And, uh, you know, people were were horrified by what had happened to him. Uh, and there were numerous attempts over the years to sort try to resurrect his re- reputation. Um, Oppenheimer himself was just, you know, he was devastated by what had happened. And um, he, <clears throat> that summer, he took his family, Kitty and his two children to, on a sailing trip to the Caribbean, thinking just to get them, you know, isolated and away from the glare of publicity. Of course. And, uh, so he went on the, he loved to sail and he went on this trip to the Caribbean and discovered the Island of St. John and the Virgin Islands. U.S. Virgin Islands and uh, ended up buying a a small plot of land right on the beach and building a very spartan simple beach shack where he spent for the rest of his life every year he spent three or four months of the year in St. John being a beach bum (laughs) Uh, and you know he he had he had once been America, one of America's most famous public intellectuals and after the 54 trial he was disinvited by universities from giving speeches that had long been scheduled uh, you know he became a sort of public non-entity um, it, it was you know it's a sad story and uh, that reminds me when when he died actually the Senator William Fulbright went on to the floor of the Senate and said, we we should remember not only what Robert Oppenheimer did for us as a nation, but we Americans should remember what we did to him. And he died so young.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, he, he was exactly, what, 64, 64. 62? 64. 64? He died of esophageal cancer from all that smoking and, the martinis and the pipe smoking and cigarette smoking. Um, yeah, he died essentially a broken man. But as you note, you know, Strauss's attempt to, uh,
1: I, I guess, win the media battle in the immediate aftermath of the, the hearing probably allowed for Oppenheimer's reputation to be ultimately rehabilitated, culminating with uh, your book. Um and uh, now with uh, with Nolan's film. Um, do you feel like he has been uh, rehabilitated as if, uh, that his uh, I, that I guess in some small measure uh, his uh, standing in American history has been uh, sort of restored?
0: Well, sort of. Um, and it, it's, you know, Important to note that last December, the Secretary of Energy in the Biden administration, Jennifer Granholm, actually issued an executive order nullifying the 1954 decision. And uh, she did so on the basis of, I think, reading American Prometheus. And uh, Marty and I had a hand in actually lobbying this The Energy Department and various administrations to try to make this happen. And we finally succeeded last December. But uh, it's a small consolation. You know, uh, what happened to Oppenheimer is a terrible, still a terrible black mark on the nation's history. And that's why the Oppenheimer story is so relevant. To our times it's you know it's uh relevant because we're still struggling with the dawn of the atomic era we are still living with nuclear weapons and uh as the war in the ukraine rages on uh, we can see uh, a russian dictator vladimir putin uh threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons so it's possible i mean you know yes these uh, weapons haven't been used in combat since hiroshima and nagasaki but the story's not over and it may be possible that it ends very badly uh, and so that's one reason why this the oppenheimer story is so relevant to our times is he was a prophet not only of the creation of the atomic age, but he was a prophet warning about the dangers of living with these weapons. And then uh, the other story, of course, is what happened to him in the 654 hearing. And his, the lesson of that is still with us today, because the, what happened in the witch hunts that Joe McCarthy started in the 50s planted the seeds for our own divisive politics today. Uh, you can explain the Trump era, the Trump brand of politics uh, through the McCarthy era. You know, Joe McCarthy's chief of staff was a young lawyer named Roy Cohn, who later became Donald Trump's lawyer and taught him everything he knew about uh, politics. And then finally the Oppenheimer story is so very relevant because you know we're a society drenched in science and technology and yet we our own citizens many of them seem to have a suspicion of science and expertise and the scientific method and you can see this uh, most visibly demonstrated during the pandemic when uh dr anthony fauci and other public health officials their their expertise and their authenticity and their honesty were questioned uh, by a, a citizenry that is somehow very suspicious of science and scientists and i think that actually dates back to what happened to oppenheimer in 54 when uh America's most famous scientist was sort of tarred and feathered, and that sent a message to scientists everywhere, you know, not to get out of your, uh, your narrow lane. Don't pretend to become experts that can give uh, scientific or expert policy advice to, uh, as public intellectuals to the politicians. Um, because you could be brought down and humiliated in the same way that Oppenheimer was. So it's odd. We're a a society drenched in science, and yet we don't have many scientific heroes that have credibility or uh, respect from the general populace. And so anyway, the Oppenheimer story is a story f- for our times. It's extremely relevant. Absolutely.
1: Well, we have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, we're certainly uh, grateful you've been able to talk us through Oppenheimer's life and his work. Uh, I wanted to ask you lastly, though, what are you uh, working on now?
0: Well, I, uh, for all my sins, I, I recently <laughs> signed a contract to do a biography of one Roy Cohn. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm going back. This sort of comes out of the Oppenheimer project. Um, as I just explained, you know, Roy Cohn uh, was chief counsel to Senator Joe McCarthy, and he had a, a vivid and colorful life. Um And he he's particularly uh, relevant to explain the era of Donald Trump. So um, I haven't written a word yet, but I'm deep into the (laughs) research. (laughs) Well, hopefully, uh,
1: hopefully you'll uh, hopefully you won't uh, get bogged down as as Marty did with a a quarter century project. (laughs) Disease, yes, yeah. (laughs) well wish you the best of luck with that thanks you so much again for being on the, the show today okay thank
0: you